Hi, everybody. This is animator Mark Pudliner, and you are listening to Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney with your hosts, L. John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, your daily source for everything Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. <laughs> Just joking. We don't do that, kind of. Not daily, anyway. Uh, it's a show, actually, about all things Disney, where every week we talk about pop culture and what's streaming, what's in theaters, artists, books, Disney films, and so much more. My name is Al John Go. I am a podcaster, pop culturist, and a lifelong Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan. And you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Uh, Al John, wow, what a busy week. Uh, we've got a great show. We've yeah. got Fraser McLean, uh, <laughs> our friend from Scotland. Uh, and, and I will say, you know, last week we 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 crossed the northern border into Canada to, yeah. to visit with Mark Pudliner. Yeah. This week we're crossing the southern border and making an incursion into Mexico to visit with Scotland. Scottish uh, animation artist and author and uh, instructor, uh, Fraser McLean. So we're looking forward to uh, chatting it up with him. You know what? Good good conversation. Oh, absolutely. You know what I love about our guests is that they wear so many hats. It's like we'll have to do artist slash instructor slash, you know, globetrotter slash, uh, you know, world renowned, whatever. Uh, There's so many slashes involved in that. Even with you, Dave, I mean, you know, the the accolades keep coming, but uh, it's always great to have your friends on the show. Yeah, you know, I, I got to tell you, though, that's the nature of the business because, you know, a lot of people, you know, get into animation. They they start out, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, as animators or, you know, even, you know, like an animation assistant or, or like me. I started as an in-betweener and worked my way up, right? Uh, so everybody kind of starts out. And then as you grow in the industry, you sort of gravitate towards those things that you really enjoy. Yeah. So, you know, you've got people people going into layout and you got background painters and you've got, you know, uh, people leaving at their animation position and, go- and becoming directors and art directors and things like that. So I think, um, yes, everybody seems to have multiple hats yes, uh, yeah. that we bring on. Well, I love, we love it. And it, I'm glad you um, out there listening to the show, love the shows and the behind the scenes moments from, from all the great films, you know, from animation to live action that we cover here on the show. Uh, we've got a lot of great guests lined up. I know coming in the future, we've got some awesome news that we're going to talk about as well as what's streaming. But uh, Dave, you, as you mentioned, it's been a very busy week for both you it, and I. It, it, yeah, it has been. And I want to give a, a, a really uh, special shout out to uh, my friend, George Scribner. And our listeners may may know his name because he directed Oliver and Company for Disney, as well as uh, Prince and the Pauper, uh, which was a featurette with Mickey Donald and Goofy, uh, and also uh, was in story development on The Lion King, and then has done a ton of projects at Walt Disney Imagineering, 
uh, in development of attractions and shows and things like that. So uh, he uh, opened the show Thursday night at the Panama Canal Museum in Panama, uh, showcasing his paintings of the Panama Canal uh, and the Panama Canal expansion, which he had an eight-year commission documenting in paintings. And it's culminated in this wonderful show. And I had the honor of writing the book, uh, The Art of George Scribner, the Panama Canal Paintings, uh, for his show uh, down there. So it was a very successful opening. So congratulations to George Scribner, who, by the way, was a guest on uh, the Skull Rock podcast last year. Uh, and uh, and anybody interested in, in in the book, you can go to the oldmillpress.com and yeah. check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes. But uh, congratulations to uh, to George as well. And we look forward to having him back on a other show. And you can once again, check out that show in our show archive there at skullrockpodcast.com or on anchor.fm for sure. Everywhere you get podcasts. Um, before we get started, we also have some awesome listener email, some feedback. Skull Rock Podcast. Answers your email. All right, Dave, this is from Michael Earl saying hello. And thank you so much for an entertaining podcast. I have a suggestion for a future interview, Dave Pacheco. When I met him back in the early 90s, he was an art director for WDCC. Do you know what that is, Dave? That would really be uh, Walt Disney Consumer Products. Yes. Uh, and uh, I know Dave. Uh, I worked with Dave at Disney Animation many years ago before. Again, you know, here's an, here's an example of another uh, animation artist who branched out and he moved into uh, art directing at Consumer Products and making sure all of the, you know, classic characters and the, the Disney Animation characters are on model and being used appropriately and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, he's a terrific guy. Uh, we're going to try and reach out to him and, and see if we can get him on as a guest. Absolutely. So thank you for that suggestion, Michael. Uh, Dave is great and he's worked on so many great projects. And it's really interesting to me, as you mentioned that, is how consistent these style guides are for all the characters that are portrayed through the entire Disney company. Um, so that's a very fascinating topic. So we look forward to that. Once again, if you'd like to send listener feedback, feel free to utilize. <clears throat> Excuse me. Are you choking on me? Choking on some coffee there, Dave. Went down the wrong, <laughs> the wrong, the wrong pipe there. Okay, so uh, I get choked up, Michael. Those emails are great. Uh, send us some feedback through social media, uh, through all the platforms, as well as our emails there personally. So that'd be great. And right now, Dave, what are we streaming this week uh, in your busy schedule and mine? Uh, what are we watching here? Oh, well, let's see. I, I went and saw the latest Liam Neeson movie called Memory, uh, which I enjoyed. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's his best movie, but you know what? I, I will go see anything that Liam Neeson is in. Mm -hmm. Because he's such a great presence on screen and he's such a great actor. Uh, so I went and saw that. Um, I also watched the uh, finale of uh, Moon Knight uh, on Disney Plus. Uh, really terrific. I, I have to say that, that, you know, it was only six episodes, but it was really well done. And I really enjoyed this series. I hope that they're going to continue it. I really do. And, and once again, 
production value on these Marvel TV shows is the equivalent of what you see in the theaters. Mm -hmm. I mean, just incredibly well done. Um, I I also started watching uh, season six, the final season of Better Call Saul. There you go. And before we before we started recording, I I mentioned Al John, and I want I want to tell our listeners, I occasionally don't uh, get you know occasionally I get under the weather and I don't feel well. Uh, and last Sunday was one of those days where I don't know I had some kind of little bug. It wasn't COVID, mm-hmm. uh, but it kind of knocked me out a little bit. And I watched. Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. uh, which I had not seen in quite a number of years. And I'll tell you something. This is one of the great movies yes. uh, of all time in my book. And I have to tell you, Al John, I went to the opening of this movie at the Ziegfeld Theater in Manhattan. Mm. And I, I can't even remember when this opened. It was like 78, 79? 79. 79. Yeah. I went, I went to the Ziegfeld Theater, which was a 1,500-seat movie theater. Mm. Uh, you know, with, I mean, it's just a beautiful theater. And I still have a vivid memory of a, sitting in a dark theater and hearing that, whoom, 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 whoom getting louder and louder. And then all of a sudden the helicopters coming across the screen over the jungle. I mean, just absolutely spectacular. And it, it, you know, it was riveting to watch it again. Uh, Martin Sheen, Marlon Brando, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Robert Duvall. Yeah, Duvall. Uh, I mean, just really a, a, a fantastic film, uh, I have to say. And, you know, Francis Ford Coppola. And by the way, next week, uh, I'm actually going to see um, uh, the 50th anniversary of uh, The Godfather oh, uh, at, at the Academy Theater. <laughs> so I watched that. <clears throat> Apocalypse Now, and I also watched Hell or High Water uh, with um, Jeff Bridges, not Jeff Bridges. Uh, yes, no. Who's uh, which Bridges is it? Oh, hold on a second. <laughs> I'm he, was in, he was in the Big Lebowski. Um, <coughs> Jeff Bridges. <coughs> it was. Je- it was Jeff Bridges, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I want to say Bo, but it's not Bo's his brother. No, yeah, yeah. it was Jeff Bridges and uh, Chris Pine. Yes, uh, really well done. Yeah, really well done film. So anyway, that was what I did last Sunday because I was uh, slightly under the weather. Oh man, well, what do you? What do you? Uh, wait a second. I you, you told me this right before mm-hmm. you saw Doctor Strange last night. Yeah, as we record this. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time at the office, some late nights in the office this week, and uh, ended up saying, <laughs> what the heck, let's go see Strange Midnight. And uh, yeah, I'm paying for it today. Um, but it was well worth it. You know, I have a, a, a critique. You know, my, my critique scale typically is not, you know, unless I'm going in IMDb, which I do often and rate the films yeah. on a scale of one to ten. 
I always have the the rewatchability aspect is so so important for me. If you like it and it's passable, gets a thumbs up. You want to rewatch it again and again and multiple see you know showings like that for me that's gold and it was not a waste of time at all. I completely loved um, the multi uh, multiverse of madness with Doctor Strange. Um, obviously, love Sam Raimi. I'm a huge Sam Raimi fan, and I think this will satisfy and check a lot of boxes for the casual MCU fan who just wants to go in and be entertained, for Sam Raimi fans who like his style and, um, you know, all that. And, you know, I feel like whenever you hear that there's an evil book of magic, then Sam Raimi's <laughs> name automatically appears because he's so known for the evil dead and the Necronomicon yeah. and all that and uh, and all that evil horror that his sensibility comes through. There's his sense of humor in there. His lucky charm is in there too. There's a lot of great cameos. I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but I'll, I'll, yeah, go ahead, Dave. I was just going to ask you the question. Um, did you feel like by having Sam Raimi direct this film, do you feel like uh, they gave him a little bit more latitude to go outside of the sort of formulaic Marvel superhero movies? I I don't think so. I think they play to his strengths, right? Okay. Yeah, so I, I think yeah. um I think he he knew he knew his assignment, right? That's kind yeah. of the 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 phrase of the day is that he knew his assignment and he executed and I think he was able to throw his sensibility in there. Um so but once again, let's look at the cast. Uh, these are all great cast members uh, once again peak and top performance from Benedict Cumberbatch as Strange, uh, Elizabeth Olsen as Wanda, uh, you had Chitwell, L. Forrest, Baron Mordo, uh, Benedict Wong as Wong, you know, uh, Rachel McAdams comes back, and then um, relatively newcomer for me, I'm very unfamiliar, but Sochi Gomez as American Chavez, she is a, a young actress, and is and is great in her role. I thought she was very charming. She has a big heart, but everything is in service of the story. So while there was a lot of stuff going on, I felt like they they weaved it to where it was great. Comic book fans will check the box there because of how faithful they are to the source material, the actors' performances, special effects, music from Danny Elfman, Sam Raimi's signatures that are put in there. So and it's still very MCU. So you want to go see it? I suggest you do see it in a theater and be like me and watch it multiple times because I, think I, this I, is I am doing it. Uh, you know, uh, I by the time our listeners hear this, I will have seen it this past Saturday at nine in the morning. I'm going <laughs> to see it in IMAX, I have to tell you. Yeah, yeah. Because well, I think that's the only way to see it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Um, I too also saw the Moon Knight uh, season finale and was once again blown away. Um, so big kudos once again to um, you know Oscar Isaac, Ethan Hawke, Mae Calway, uh, just amazing. Great to see um, inclusion as actually part of the story. And I'm talking about you know the um, you know Egyptian superheroes and yeah. uh, and and the mythos and all that as it serves the story not just simply shoehorned in to just, you know, service a certain segment of 
you know, the viewing audience, but actually in service to story. Yeah. That to me rules everything. And, um, you know, I can't go go on on and on about how good Oscar Isaac is because I think he's brilliant, and Ethan Hawke as well. Been a big fan of theirs uh, for a while, but everybody's super good. So yeah. um, I'm looking no, forward it, to. I mean, to it's totally it enjoyable, and I keep saying it has that flavor of the original um, uh, Indiana Jones film. They, absolutely, you know? there's a lot of great little uh, Easter eggs they planted in just yeah. just different homages. Um, there is that those Indiana Jones homages, and I appreciate that as well because it's just it's a smart show, and yeah. I look forward to seeing more. So uh, those are that's my quick uh, uh, my quick pick there for for what I've seen this week. So awesome stuff indeed. And I tell you, I, moving into that, I think we should go ahead and launch into. <laughs> Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Strange 2, flying to uh, 36 million in just the previews, as you mentioned, Dave. And Phenomenal. I mean, what's the projection going to be like, Dave? What do you think? You, you know, uh, I I was reading this morning uh, that uh, it, it did the 36, 37 million last night, on uh, Thursday night in uh, previews. For the weekend, and uh, it's already over eighty something million uh, on foreign box office, and uh, they're looking at uh, potentially a three hundred million dollar global weekend mm-hmm. for this movie, which is just incredible. And you know, I'm willing to bet it's going to fall between two hundred fifty and three hundred million for the for the opening weekend. Great, great. Bring people to the box office and. Uh, once again, kudos to Marvel Studios as well as everyone involved in the film, Disney as well, uh, for putting together what I believe is certainly very rewatchable. So uh, congratulations to you guys. Yeah. Um, may the 4th be with you, uh, and the Revenge of the 5th has come and gone. But uh, I was sporting my Star Wars shirt at work uh, for two days. <laughs> different shirts on different days, mind you. Okay, okay I wasn't wearing the same outfit thank twice. You. Yes. you know, I'm a clean guy. <laughs> um, but Disney Plus showcases a new series of Lucasfilm stuff in celebration for Star Wars. Day. I believe that's still up. It's nicely curated for your viewing pleasure. Um, you've seen the. Uh, you may have seen. Uh, of course, the book of Boba Fett that came out recently. They are putting out the Disney Gallery, which explores behind the scenes, which is great. I love the behind the scenes looks at all of that and how they are able to integrate all the special effects, music, magic, and of course, all the actor behind the scenes as well. So check that out. And there is also a new docu series called Light and Magic uh, that will be debuting in July 27th, which is very nice. So I'm sure that's more of the ILM. Um, stuff that we have here. And then, uh, so yeah, so the Star Wars stuff continues. And of course, leading all the way up to the latest Obi-Wan Kenobi trailer that they were able to show, Dave. And this wasn't just a tease. It was an actual trailer for uh, May the 4th that they showed off with Ewan McGregor and a lot more behind the scenes with a particular dark side yeah, no, I'm, I I saw it and I, I'm, I'm absolutely looking forward to seeing that series drop. Yeah. Yep, coming out. So uh, be sure, everyone, to uh, uh, I, I always say marker calendars, but you know what I mean. Go ahead and put it in your watch list for Obi Wan debuting exclusively on Disney Plus Friday, May 27th. And some more stuff for Disney Plus news. 
Arian Shimhadri and Leah Sava, Jeffries, to star in a brand new Disney Plus epic live action adventure series, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Now, I love this series, Dave. Um, it, it's really cool. It's going to be Disney branded television series produced by 20th Century Television. Um, are you familiar with the Percy Jackson series? Not really. I never got into it. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is based on Disney Hyperion's best-selling book series by author Rick uh, Reardon. And this is about uh, Percy Jackson, a 12-year-old uh, fantastic story, of course, who's coming to terms with his newfound divine powers granted to him by Zeus, right? So mm -hmm. it's kind of uh, a little bit of that, um, oh, I, 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 I dare say uh, Harry Potter vibe. Right. Okay. But it's okay. kind of that Harry Potter vibe yeah. with that Greek mythology. Of course, it's all a coming of age story with him and his friends as they embark on an adventure of a lifetime to find and restore Olympus. So uh, this is very interesting to see here. So, yeah, this is going to be very good. Looking forward to that. Another thing to look forward to, especially uh, for people of Pakistan, Dave, did you, did you know that I went to Pakistan? No, I did not know that. That's an area of the world I have not visited. So uh, my band uh, toured in the Middle East uh, performing for the USO. And uh, in doing that, I spent some time in Pakistan um, once or twice. And Where were uh, you, Karachi? Yeah, some, somewhere. somewhere. I, I, it, I got to go in a map and okay. <laughs> check out where I was in Pakistan. But uh, um, I found the people to be very, very nice and uh, had, had a good time there with the troops as well as the natives there. Um, great food, of course. But Miss Marvel, uh, which is coming to Disney Plus uh, in a few months, is making history with a very special theatrical release. Now, you know, we talk about... Dave, that Disney Plus is not servicing every bit now uh, of the territories of, of the world, but they are touching quite a bit. But fans over there are going to be able to see Miss Marvel over there in Pakistan because they don't wow. have it there. So they're going to have two-hour releases every two weeks, so they can entire so the Pakistanian people can see, um, you know, basically you know, one of their own, if you will, because that's, uh, you know, Miss Marvel is being depicted as such. Um, so you can see it. It's going to be a cinema format version of all six series. And it's going to be starting, what, uh, Thursday, June 16th, all the way to July 14th. So uh, wow, it's uh, pretty nice that it gets this. Uh, so treatment. they're doing a theatrical release of each episode. Yeah, of, of two episodes each. Oh, 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 okay, of two. I got you. So, yeah, they're going to treat every so everything right. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty neat to, to see, of course. So, it's wild. Uh, yeah, and, of course, uh, Miss Marvel will also be uh, featured in the brand-new Marvel's uh, movie theatrical release that stars, once again, uh, Brie Larson and uh, Tenoya Paris as well. So uh, leading up to the Marvel, uh, the Miss Marvel number, or the Captain Marvel 2 uh, sequel. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, all right, Dave, here we are. Florida taxpayers sue <laughs> Governor Ron DeSantis for eliminating Disney special district. Yeah, this, this is just going to be an ongoing saga. Uh, that's not going to be resolved anytime soon. <laughs> I can't imagine, um, I can't imagine this playing out, um, like a, a sands of the hourglass. So do the days of our lives. Yeah. Uh, daily, well, weekly. Know, a drama update regarding DeSantis versus the special districts versus the yeah. communities. So. 
Well, and, and this feeds into the next story, which is Disney's corporate uh, corporate affairs head leaves three months after joining Disney. Uh, I mean, I wish we had a sound effect of a bowling ball rolling, uh, rolling along on a wooden floor, you know, wait, because wait. Yeah. the heads are starting to roll. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I've got like, uh, I've got some, oh, wait, hold on a second. I've got the little... Uh, I'm out of here. There you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it was only a matter of time before uh, somebody, uh, you know, took the uh, the hit for this major fumble over the Reedy Creek Improvement District down in Florida and this whole, uh, you know, battle with uh, Governor DeSantis. Mm-hmm. So uh, the head of uh, corporate affairs leaves after just three months uh, in the job. And, the, and that person's been replaced with somebody new who's jumping from the frying pan into the fire, as they say. You know? <laughs> we wish you well in your future endeavors. Yes. En- enjoy your severance package, <laughs> you know, as they say. <laughs> And don't let the door hit you on your way out. Well, that's hey, unfortunate. And, and, and I got to tell you, uh, I'm sure everybody's heard about this already, but Dave Chappelle, <laughs> you know, uh, at the Hollywood Bowl uh, gets attacked uh, on stage. I mean, this, honestly, this, you know, I'm, I'm not that surprised after what happened with uh, Chris Rock on stage at the Academy Awards. This is going to become like the new thing. This is like streakers back in the 70s. You know, yeah, but more violent. Yeah, it's less comical and more violent and scary. You know what I so like in this too, Dave, is you remember yeah. the Blues Brothers scene where they walk into the stage of that that uh, that dive bar and start playing behind the uh, the chicken wire. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're throwing go. glass and everything. And it's the, like the beer bottles exploding like, against yeah, the chicken wire. Exactly, cage. move them up, roll them out, rawhide. <laughs> <laughs> Get the heck out of here. <laughs> yeah, that's it. There you go. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's really a sad state of affairs. You know, when uh, you know people can't even go out and do a performance on stage without being attacked. It's it's utterly ridiculous yeah. because people pay good money to see that show. An yeah. artist, no matter what, whether it's a, a band or, or a comedian, pay great money to get entertained for that. And they shouldn't feel the need to look over their shoulder in in fear of their own safety just to yeah. apply their craft. And the other thing, too, is there there's a ton of security people there. I mean, there was a gang of security people that came running out. Well, where were they? They were all goofing off uh, in the wings of the stage like nothing was going to happen. They weren't doing their jobs. No. You know, I mean, honestly, as soon as you see somebody put their hand on the stage like they're starting to come up, they should have been all over that guy. He should never have gotten that close to Dave Chappelle. They should. I mean, look at the velocity of that video. I mean, that guy was running full speed, slipping on yeah, stage, yeah. and they basically carry him, uh, you know, tackling him and going yeah. a few yards. I mean, that was straight out of the football playbook right there. Yeah. Now, now they're going to have to come up with some sort of clever, you know, maybe maybe you have a uh, spring loaded uh, uh, net or something, you know, <laughs> that that pops out of the stage to shield the performers, you know, yeah, I don't no know. Kidding. I mean, crying out loud. I don't want to see this escalate, Dave. It's just going to get worse. Yeah. It's terrible. Thank you. Will Smith. Appreciate that. Yeah, really. Um, so, yeah. so Dave, have you seen uh, in other news, um, Jurassic world dominion and the trailer came out and it oh, reunites yeah. the classic 
classic characters with the new characters, the new cast, if you will. Uh, and this is supposed to be the ultimate uh, and closing the door on the Jurassic World series of films. Dave, this trailer is amazing. Yeah, no, I, uh, I've i seen it several times. Uh, I saw it once in the theater. Uh, it's fantastic. I mean, this is this is just, I can't wait to see this on a big screen. So it's, good. It just looks so good. So good. You have the returning new cast, if you will, uh, Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard. Always great to see her. Uh, reun or I guess unite with Sam Neill back. Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum is back. So the whole it's crew. Just the whole, the whole crew. crew. And it's just wonderful wonderful to see them um, in this film. So we're looking forward to seeing that. It looks like it's, um, oh, when was the release? The Boilerplate. Come on, Boilerplate. Why didn't you tell me when this movie's coming out? Um, okay. Well, it's coming out soon. <laughs> in, or I should say it's in theaters. I'm looking at the art. Come on, key art. Uh, June 10th. You see, we're a professional group of podcasters here, folks. There you go. Um, Star Trek also, uh, as Captain Picard and his series wraps up, we're launching into a strange new world with this new Star Trek prequel, which will explore the time of the Enterprise before Captain Kirk. You ready for this? Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I, I saw some tidbits someplace about <laughs> this was the original concept for the original Star Trek show. That's right. That's Is that right? right? Uh, yes. Similar. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you're going to see Anson Mount, by the way. Anson Mount is having a great week. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. I can't get into any more of those things. But uh, Anson Mount having a great week this week. And he is returning as Captain Christopher Pike. And yes, there is a tie-in um, to the original series. Now, um, you know, the original series had to be kind of... Um, retooled back in the 60s uh, as it was released, um, removing Captain Christopher Pike from the captain's chair, as well as Gene Roddenberry's wife as the first officer in replacement of what we have here with Captain Kirk and William Shatner and Spock. So, But what one of the characters that did remain from the original pilot that that uh, that remained with the, the Star Trek that we all know and love with William Shatner is the, the character of Spock. Yes. So, um, so that was really cool. So, yeah, strange new worlds, and the the really cool thing that I love is the Starship Enterprise, and so we're going to see the Starship Enterprise before Kirk and all of the great cast there, including Captain Pike and Spock. But you also have uh, Uhura, who has been recast, of course. You know, Nichelle Nichols, um, you know, mm -hmm. the legendary actress Wasili Rose Gooding. So she's taking the mantle of Uhura. And then we also have Rebecca Romaine as number one, uh, Una, who is the first officer, and she is wonderful. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, this right now, it's streaming on Paramount Plus, so check it out. I will be awesome. for sure. Awesome. Another great thing is Weird Al. Weird Al, Dave, on the Roku channel. Have you seen this trailer? I have not seen this. Uh, let me play a little excerpt. It's great. Anyone got an accordion? <laughs> what can I say? I'm full of surprises. That's Daniel Radcliffe, y'all. That's Daniel Radcliffe. Harry Potter himself is playing the title character, Weird Al Yankovic in Weird, the Al Yankovic story. And it looks hilarious. Coming to the Roku channel in fall of 2022. Um, 
I never, this is the movie I didn't think I wanted, but now totally want to see. You, you know, I got to say, Daniel Radcliffe looks incredible and he really does look like Weird Al. Man, he looks like Weird Al. He's great. He's got the whole 3D band behind him. And of course, product placement from yours truly. So, uh, <laughs> which is Gibson great. guitars. Hey, huh? man. Yeah. They replayed our <laughs> guitars, man. You know, big ups to my team out there in LA uh, making this happen. Uh, so I can't wait to see my guitars featured in this TV show. <laughs> but of course, also, I'm a big Weird Al fan. Um, since uh, the film UHF, uh, have you? Did you see UHF, Dave? The original UHF. Uh, I think I did. That was uh, how many years ago was? It that? was at least thirty years ago, Dave. Yeah, it, it was. It was one of those comedy uh, films. Absolutely, it, it yeah. was very campy, um, yeah. very kind of low budge, but it was it was very sure. fun. Um, and Daniel Radcliffe, I think, is amazing. Now, last but not least, oh well, well second to last story. I'm a big fan of Stephen King, Dave. Yeah, And I was a fan of Firestarter. Uh, I'm trying yeah. to get my wife to watch it because she too is, a, of course, a horror movie fan. But they're rebooting it. Coming into cinemas soon, they have released the Firestarter reboot. And this right here, starring Zac Efron, Ryan Kara Armstrong, and Gloria yeah. Rubin. I and saw the trailer for this. It looks like they've captured the essence of the original film. How about that? They, they, they really have. It's fantastic seeing a little girl setting fires and having things burst in the flames. <laughs> it's, really a terrific, it's a terrific trailer. It really is. <laughs> it is a terrific trailer. Just the way you said that was like, wow, that sounds pretty morbid too. Um, I know. It sounds crazy. It does. Wow, it's great seeing children setting fires. <laughs> we don't recommend that, everybody. Once again, uh, you know, we don't recommend that. We endorse, please endorse that. Please don't, no, please don't. <laughs> please don't have Smokey the Bear come out to your house. Uh, this is Paramount Plus, so you can be expecting that here in the months to come. Uh, the last bit of story that I have for you is that 70s show. I'm a huge fan of that 70s show. And it's returning for a Netflix sequel, Dave. Topher Grace, yeah. Mila Kunis, Ashton Kutcher, Laura Pepon. Uh, Vilder Valderrama will all appear uh, alongside Kurtwood Smith and Deborah Jo Rupp in that 90s show. Wow, Dave. Yeah, it's it's sort of, you know, it, it is a sequel. It's it's the, you know, the group 20 years later. Yeah. So, you know, they actually tried to do that 90s show uh, if I'm not, or that 80s show or something like that. They I tried to do that, that. Wasn't it that 80s that show? That 80s show. And it didn't, yeah. it didn't strike a chord with people. I feel no. like they if they released it now they probably could have uh done that because yeah, now yeah. that that 30 year the 40 year cycle is now back in full swing but uh maybe too early for that but i'm looking forward to seeing this and seeing the characters kind of grow up and and uh i'm thinking they're going to be like friends it's going to be like fr yeah. friends but with the 70 show kids so that yeah. should be a lot of fun to watch um especially i'm a big fan of uh milikunas so yeah good times and Topher grace and the whole cast hey who am i kidding i love the show <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up the news for this week dave and now we're ready for the interview yeah let's do it skull rock podcast interview time all right al john you know something i we've talked in the past about the skull rock podcast being a having a global listening audience and last week, we crossed the northern border into Canada to talk to Mark, Mark Pudliner. Well, this episode, 
we are talking to Scottish animation professional Fraser McLean, but we had to cross the southern border to go to Guadalajara, Mexico to meet up with him. So I want to welcome, I, you know, what can I say about uh, Fraser? He, he's an a- animation professional, an author, uh, an instructor, and, a, and a, just an all around great guy. And I haven't seen him in so many years. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. Welcome, Fraser, to the Skull Rock podcast. Dave, thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks to both of you. I'm really delighted to be here. Oh, yes. it's great to have you. And, and I, I, I just want to mention really quickly, because I, I said you were an author. You wrote <laughs> an incredible book called Setting the Scene, The Art and Evolution of Animation Layout. And I this did. was published back in 2011. And I have to tell you, I am so thankful that I have a copy of this book on my bookshelf because I just saw on Amazon, because it's out of print, that there's a hardcover copy selling for a one thousand five hundred and thirty five dollars and ninety six cents and none of, wow. and none, of, none of that money is coming near me or chronicle <laughs> books or any of the wonderful people who can and actually the other thing is this week on the sixth would have been roy nesbitt's 92nd birthday wow and he passed away just before his 91st birthday and i I owe Roy so much for, when I began work on the book, all the layout artists in the industry that I approached said, you can't do this book unless the first person you speak to is Roy. And the strange thing was that, you know, when you and I first met in the forum in Camden, in London in 1987, um, Roy was in the building, you know, a bit, but because the whole shtick with Roger Rabbit once the Maroon cartoon was over was that, the cartoons existed in the real world. We didn't really process background layout artwork. You know, there weren't any painted backgrounds once you got past something's cooking. Yeah. So I had like a weird 10-year period uh, because everything I did after Roger Rabbit was meant to look like Roger Rabbit. So I did lots of TV commercials for breakfast cereal and toilet freshener and kitchen sure. cleaner with Alan and Andrew at Passion Pictures. Um, I really, really didn't know what layout was until I was working on Tarzan. Because even on Space Jam, you know, that my work on Space Jam was so kind of procedural and so caught up in all the Animo software that I was a good decade into working in the industry before I walked into um, Jean-Christophe Poulin's office on Tarzan and just went, oh my God, these are the guys who actually make the movie. Like this yeah. is, you know, all this other work that you can think, I wonder who does that. I wonder who does that. It's like the layout guys do all of it basically. So yeah, it's a shame the book went out of print in July, 2018. I have started doing interviews for an updated edition, which uh, there's another publisher that has suggested they might be interested in republishing the first version. If there's a volume two that covers everything that's happened in the 10 years uh, since the, the first, since setting the scene came out. And when you consider everything that's been happening with the Unreal Engine, with Unity, with the real time rendering, you know, the whole world of animation layout has spilled even further across yes. those kind of very porous boundaries with it, it, the live yeah. action and visual effects. So there's a lot, there's probably as much to document in the 10 years since the book came out as there was in the kind of century in, in the century before exactly <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. let, let, let's start at the beginning though because i always like to ask our guests like how how did you get into the business you're you're you, you were born in london and you moved up to scotland right my father was a journalist and my mother was a teacher 
And um, my father worked in his early part of his career on a daily newspaper in Scotland. And ironically, the reason the newspaper shut down was that in the 1950s, the newspapers were losing all their advertising revenue to television. And it was a double irony because my father was one of the first television presenters in Scotland as well. He used to present a religious discussion program on what they called the God Slot on a Sunday evening. So he had to, the only other place he could be a journalist and make money in the UK was if he uh, moved to Fleet Street. And he got a job, first of all, on the Daily Telegraph. So he went from a very, very left-wing daily newspaper in Scotland to an absolutely blistering right-wing you know, <laughs> paper in, in, in London. And I, I was the result of a pay rise on the Daily Telegraph. Um, my two <laughs> older brothers were born in Glasgow. And then he got the offer in when I was four years old. Uh, by that stage, he was working on the letters to the editor page of the London Times, which was a really prestige gig. And the guy who was in, uh, Sir William Haley, who was the editor of the Times, um, they had all these supplements for higher education, for literature, for, and it was weekly supplements that came out. And the educational supplement was meaningless in Scotland because our legal and educational systems were quite distinct and separate. So he approached my father about editing and launching a Scottish edition of the weekly educational supplement. So my father was a journalist with a, uh, a very sharp and focused specialization in education. Um, so when I was four, the family moved back up to Scotland. And of course, everybody else thought that was great because they were going home. And I was like, what, what on earth are you doing? Like, this is, you know, this is my home. I was born here. I don't want to leave. Um, so yeah, I lived in, uh, we lived in Edinburgh. I went to school in Edinburgh. Um, and of course, at the age of four, I sounded like that. I sounded like I came from the East End of London. So nobody in Edinburgh could understand me. And I had to work to adopt the accent around me. And I went to art school in Glasgow. And everybody in Glasgow hates the people from Edinburgh. So I had to spend six years in Glasgow camouflaging my Edinburgh accent, uh, so carefully acquired. And I had to acquire a Glasgow accent. And then when I got into the film industry, I wound up back in London. I was like, when is this going to stop? Well, yeah, but, but that was uh, when, you, when you came back to London, that was a melting pot of the animation community, oh, man. especially for, for on sure. Roger Rabbit, because we, we had yeah. people from all over the world uh, yeah. and, and very much a heavy, heavily all over the EU uh, working on that project. For sure. And actually, when I arrived in London, um, so the, 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 to get into the movie industry in Scotland in the 1980s was extremely difficult. And um, the main reason was that the union that controlled the entertainment industries, which was then called the ACTT, was one of a group of unions, including the print unions that had made my father's life so difficult. I'm, I'm very pro-union, but there was, uh, there was all these unions that had gone kind of that crazy in the 60s and 70s. And in a country of 5 million people, when I graduated in 1983, the union would only allow three new people into the film and television industry in Scotland every year. So you had to train to be a camera operator, a sound recordist, or a film editor. You couldn't train for any of the creative or artistic grades. So not only could you not train to be, there was no animation industry in Scotland. Right. Um, you couldn't train to be a production designer or an art director, any of that stuff. So I had done a lot of work on 
videotape. Uh, in, I, I, I studied graphic design. And the reason I studied graphic design was that I, I really wanted to work in movies, but it was the only available department that was involved in any aspect of popular culture. So what, what, Now, where did you study uh, graphic design? At the Glasgow School of Art, which oh, recently, okay. sadly, tragically, one of the most important and beautiful buildings in all of Europe burned down twice. Oh, Not just no. once, it burned down twice. So the wonderful Charles Rennie Macintosh building that we got to look out. If you were in the... Charles Rennie Macintosh building, you had to look out at these ugly 1970s concrete blocks. But because I was in one of the ugly 1970s co concrete blocks, I used to sit and have a, a, a beautiful view of this fantastic, uniquely um, magnificent building that Charles Rennie Macintosh created for the Glasgow School of Art. So I, but I, the tutors that were in charge of graphic design, which covered illustration, photography, um, all through my first year, I loved the fact that I got to draw the whole time. But when I went to art college, my picture in my head of what I was going to be able to do for a living was the only career I could see was to be a painter. And this is crazy because I grew up watching Disney. I grew up watching Hanna-Barbera. I grew up watching MGM cartoons. And um, in Scotland, the way that you, I, I always had to get this across to the students that I work with because everybody's got devices that fit into their pocket now on which you can see Disney in full color 24 hours a day. But when I got home from school in the 1960s and the 1970s, the BBC would run Top Cat or uh, the Flintstones to coincide with kids coming in from school. Um, there was a lot of UK stop motion animation, so Bagpuss, Camberwick Green, The Wombles, all the film fair, Oliver Postgate stuff. The BBC used to run a double bill of Tom and Jerry on a Tuesday evening, and my dad was a Tom and Jerry addict, so he would we would sit and watch the, the double bill of Tom and Jerry. But you could only see Disney, and this was in black and white on a 12-inch screen. You could only see Disney at Christmas and uh, Easter and the summer holidays. And, you know, they, they would occasionally show... The, the, the wonderful world of Disney, we, that would be imported and you would see it occasionally, but you didn't see any of the feature films and you saw these three minute excerpts that were introduced by local like British comedians or pop stars or whatever. And then they would show a little trailer for whatever like Robin Hood or, uh, you know, Sword in the Stone or whatever was coming out that, that year. But it's impossible to get through to people. We only had three television channels. So all the Warner Brothers stuff was on a Sunday afternoon program called the Glenn Michael Cartoon Cavalcade. <laughs> and I never really worked out how all this licensing stuff worked till much later on, but it never occurred to me that, oh, okay, so the BBC has the deal with Disney and with Hanna-Barbera. The independent television company has got the deal with Warner Brothers. So you could watch all the Bugs and Daffy and Roadrunner Coyote stuff on a Sunday afternoon. And as a kid, I really understood very clearly what the difference in quality was between, you know, it only took like three drawings and a couple of whiz lines to get Barney Rubble to open the fridge and take like a chicken leg out. Yeah. But that same action in a Disney movie, in order to plan what you were going to watch on television before we had VHS, before we had streaming services, you would buy the Radio Times and the TV Times, two magazines, it was like the TV listings, yeah. And you have to believe me when I, I, I don't know if this was still the case when you came to London when Roger Rabbit started, 
But on those occasions during the national holidays at Christmas and Easter, where the Disney special was going to be on and they were going to show excerpts from Pinocchio and from Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, everybody would get the ballpoint pen out and put a big circle around that. And as God is my witness, if you went out into the streets while that program was on, the streets were empty. Like the whole country came to a standstill because there wasn't anything on earth that looked like Disney. They were the only people that did that. Sure. And as a child growing up, I love to draw and I love to paint and I love to do all things pictorial and visual and creative. But it, in those days, people who grew up in Scotland, you didn't even get on a plane. The idea that I would go to the other side of the world and I would be amongst all these clever people in America who would do animation. And it was like saying I was going to go to NASA and I was going to, you know, climb on the next space rocket with Neil Armstrong. It was just so out of reach. You know, I I do want to just interject here. When I did come over and live in London, I think there was only five or six channels still. When you came over, there was four. Yeah, and, and, and and then I had to get a TV license. Exactly. Yeah. T- tell our listeners what a TV license is. It's a not TV like, license, you, it's a, TV not like license. a driver's license. No, a TV license is a really great way of ensuring a degree of independence in everything from news reporting to... Um, yeah, so if you ha- if you uh, when you bought a television in the UK, this is still the case. You, you ha- the, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, is funded by the, the television license. Correct. And there's no way around it. You have to pay for it. And that means that it is... How much is ad- that, by the way? How much is that today? Um, I, 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 I pay mine on a direct debit. I still have it. Um, off, the top of, off the top of your head? Um, off the top of my head? I'd you don't have to, have to look it I'd, up. I'd have to Google it. I really I, don't I, know. I, I think it was like 10 or 20 quid. It wasn't much in the 1980s. And yeah. the, the deal is that it means that nothing is sponsored. Right. So you don't have advertising breaks and you don't have the terrible partiality or showbiz element that creeps in once you have people who are funding your your coverage or your, your program or whatever. And the great thing for me was that the year before I graduated in 1982, that was when we got Channel 4. So when I got into the industry, a lot of the projects that I worked on were funded by Channel 4, and their whole remit was to provide a platform for people who really didn't usually have access to mainstream media. So there was a lot of amazing feature films and you know, marginalized groups who were suddenly given a, a, an opportunity to have their voice heard. And there were some really extraordinary experimental things that were doing, and they had two commissioning editors for... Uh, animation. So there was a great boom in animation production and it was great, but I never imagined to begin with because my only in was to take the training opportunity that was available through the union and train to be a film editor. Yeah. Um, when I landed in London, I was working for an extraordinary company in two old warehouses down by the River Thames called Sands Films, and it was a husband and wife team, Richard Goodwin, the producer, and Christine Edzard, um, his wife. And she had written an adaptation of Charles Dickens' Little Dorrit, which was later adapted by the BBC with Andy Serkis and all his people. This was going to be two three-hour cinema release movies. So just before I started work on Roger Rabbit, I'd spent two and a half years 
on 35 millimeter mag doing all the track laying and sound effects editing for a six hour epic starring Alec Guinness. So I spent 36 weeks with Obi-Wan Kenobi walking through my cutting room with a bacon roll and a cup of coffee saying good morning. And I just, you know, I, I thought this is my career as a film director on its first rung on the ladder. But by the time Little Dorrit was released, there was a big crisis in the UK industry and a lot of the money had just like burned up and yeah. fizzled out. And I would go into London to the um, newsagent in Old, Old Compton Street that sold Screen International. And that was the only publication that was run by the industry that had all the listings for the available jobs in TV and film. Sure. And I would go in at 6 a.m. every Monday morning, every week to get this. And one week, having spent months with no work and nobody replying to my letters, there was a little advert with a picture of Mickey Mouse. And it said, Walt Disney are looking for uh, experienced, uh, you know, talented animation personnel to work on a full length live action. And I was like, I don't care if I make coffee for these guys. I had to get onto that production. But because my tutors at the Glasgow School of Art hated my drawing style because it was too classical, too academic, too traditional, um, I didn't even send them any artwork because I didn't have any animation experience. And I didn't get a reply. And I was like, I'm not giving up this easily. And I, I managed to find the number because it mentioned the forum yeah. in Camden. So I looked up the forum and I got put through to Don Hahn. Yeah. And he pretty much got my letter out of the trash. And he said, <laughs> um, well, you know, the reason we didn't reply is you wanted to work in the cutting room and we have a very small cutting. And they went, hold on a minute. It says on your resume, you spent four years at the Glasgow School of Art. Can you draw? And I went, yeah, uh-huh. He said, do you have any like traditional, you know, perspective figure drawing? And I was like, oh, I've got a ton of that stuff. And he said, can I look at it? And two hours after that phone conversation, I was in Don's office with my art school portfolio packed with all the stuff I'd done when I was trying to draw like Michelangelo. And he got... I, he didn't really even say anything. And I was standing in his office just going, what's going on here? And he picked up the phone and said, oh, Chris, um, I got a guy here I think could be good for your department. And then, you know, we stood and looked at one another silently for like two minutes. And then Chris Knott came in the door with a cigarette in his hand because everybody used to chain smoke sure. the whole time. Yeah. And he just smoked his way through my portfolio and went, Sure, yeah, can you start on Monday? And I was like, start what? Like, start, <laughs> what is going on? And, and I, I started on Monday with Chris Jenkins and uh, Graham Burt. And there was about seven or eight of us all started on Bar Monday. Barney, I remember Barney. Barney came in from, yeah, Barney Russell, uh, Mark Ellis, Dave Sigrist, uh, Dave Pritchard, my yeah. father, all these, a lot of people came in from Farnham, which was the only... Call it Farnham would have sued Disney if they'd had bigger lawyers, but they lost about two or three undergraduate years who just thought, are we going to stay on campus and, you know, where there's yeah. only one rostrum camera or are we going to go and get paid to right. work on it? And, you know, James Baxter and Neil yeah. Boyle and all these. Yeah. So we, we, I walked into the forum in Camden like on that Monday morning and there was a thing in the contract that, you know, I got 186 pounds a week. And if I cleared the first four weeks without screwing up too badly, it went up to 200 pounds a week. And that's I still, I, I have that as part of my keynote presentation. That's fantastic. Hey, by the way, I do, I do want to let our listeners know, I did look up how much a TV license is. And as of January, 2022, it's 159 pounds a year. 
Okay. 200 bucks US. And like you said, it funds the BBC essentially, as well as some of the other productions that are going on. And nobody on planet Earth would have heard of David Attenborough if it wasn't for that licensing fee. That's right. So, you know, it's done a lot of good things. (laughs) Yeah. So, so you get, you, you got hired. Uh, uh, and I don't know how long you'd been working there before I came in. Because it was I, a matter I, of weeks because it was yeah. you came in when we were in the downstairs. We were up next to all the ink and paint guys to begin with, and then they just ran out of space. Yeah. So the room I, that you and Dorse came to. Um, yeah. With that, that was you must have joined about six weeks after I did. I think. Okay. Yeah. I, Dorse and I had been working on Land Before Time in Dublin. For and, sure. And, yeah. And, and as as the effects completed on that project, I had I had already been talking with Don about get getting out of there and getting over to to London and working on Roger Rabbit. So it, it was, was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh man, I I remember um, I, I actually did a presentation last week online for a, a young group of students in Honduras uh, uh-huh. through a a, comp- a a new animation school in Honduras called Vast, which is run by my friends uh, Osman and Alexandra, and they're really working hard to... There's so many places all over Latin America at the moment that are really working to build their, their industry. And the students had voted, oh, can we do um, a Q&A about Roger Rabbit? So the day that we started, um, the first thing that happened was they got everybody together in the foyer and you got a little polystyrene cup of coffee, and then we went into the screening room. And they showed us that test footage that they did with that guy going down the fire escape with Roger hitting the the red flashing lamp and everything. And I remember it was only a few, it's on YouTube, you can check it out. And, And it was only a few seconds long. And when they put the lights back on, everybody was frozen with their polystyrene cup of coffee halfway to their mouth, just going, what was that? Like, what... What have we signed up? Because everybody was thinking, oh, bedknobs and broomsticks, Mary Poppins. And this was just, yeah. it, there was no, there was nothing in the human genome or whatever it is. That, that There was no physical visual experience that had touched anywhere near that high mark that they hit with the- well it, it was it was the um it, it was taking live action and animation as we knew it to that point it was taking it to the nth degree well it, it flipped a couple of the traditional approaches entirely yeah. on their head and, and the first and, one and was all, moving all- and all done without computers. Oh, That's completely. what we have to keep emphasizing. Yeah. It was yeah. never there was no digital uh, compositing. It was there was no computers. It was all it was all uh, yeah. It was um, it was all analog. Combina- yeah, it, yeah. Even what ILM were doing, it, it was you know the the. Um, I think there was a degree of aerial image printed. You know, it was, it was the, the 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 so much of what we did on the Rostrum camera. What John Leatherbarrow shot. Um, on like high contrast black and white, you know, the stuff that you and I were doing by hand, you were keying and uh, by the end of it, I was assisting, but I started off as, as an in-betweener. Um, when they were doing um, movies like Mary Poppins, the whole deal was that they, they didn't move the camera because you would have to tolerate a frame by frame shift in perspective, which would be suicidal in yeah. terms of time and cost. And when when I was interviewing Roy Nesbitt for setting the scene, he said, oh, yeah, Zemeckis was entirely... When Zemeckis and Spielberg came over to meet with Dick Williams and they were talking about it, Zemeckis really wanted to impress 
on Dick Williams, the fact that he'd done his homework about all this. He said, of course, we won't really be able to move the camera that much. And Dick Williams was like, no, no, this is your Robert Zemeckis. Everybody loves what you do with the camera. You just make your movie and we'll find a way to, you know, and everybody in the room was listening to Dick saying this and just going, uh, that was a dagger. Like, like that was a dagger, dagger into our hearts. <laughs> yeah. Because, because there were, if you recall, quite a number of shots that should have been locked off, but had the ever so slight drift on them. And uh, all we could do was get yeah. the individual frame by frame black and white stats yeah. and trace the perspective of. And that was yeah. that was what you had to do before you could start keying yeah, anything. Exactly. But the other thing that they did on um if you think about Bednons and Broomsticks and you think about uh, Mary Poppins, um they always went into a kind of parallel world where the cartoons and the real people interacted. And it was a short sequence. And, you know, when they follow um, Dick Van Dyke into the chalk painting uh, in Mary Poppins, they come out into the magical world in much brighter costumes and they're yeah. dr brushing off all the chalk dust. Yeah. And they are very, very heavily lit. So yes. the whole idea was we don't move the camera and we overlight the live action figures so they look two dimensional. Right. And we did the total opposite. And Chris had built up this reputation for like, well, we can do even more with the lighting on Jessica Rabbit. Instead of doing like, you know, a tone mat and two, uh, an edge light and a rim light, let's do six or seven layers and let's have the sequence and let's have the see-through level. And so they had taken it to this stratospheric new level of three-dimensional modeling yeah. on the characters. And when I, I, I don't have any of the original artwork from Roger Rabbit to, to, to show to my students, but I kept a lot of the, the artwork from, we did a commercial passion for Weetabix that used the dum-dum yeah. bullets idea, only the bullets were not little cowboys and Indians. They were uh, Peter Laurie, Edward G. Robinson, and Jimmy Cagney. They were like little movie gangsters. And I, I build up this demonstration in Photoshop to say, okay, we would get the line artwork on our desk, We'd get the reference as a black and white stat. Yeah. If we were lucky, we could go up and watch on the chem or the steam bank to see what, what it looked like in general, mark off timings on the, you know, that, that shot, the bump the lamp shot yeah. where they're sawing through the handcuffs. Chris Jenkins keyed that out. I assisted that. And I think the team of like Barney and the other in-betweeners, I think we were on that for five or six weeks because yeah, there were I, well, I wouldn't so be surprised. It was, all, it was all on ones, and you had you had the shadows going all over the place. And, and they also had to go over Hoskins, and we we had yeah. to we had to track what the highs and lows were of the movement of the shadows on the Steenbeck and mark that off in numbers on the exposure sheet. And I I've, I kept this big diagram that I created for <laughs> like all the kind of rollover things that were happening on the on the the tone mats and stuff. Yeah. And by the time I finish like doing the step by step with the Weetabix example, and then I show them the diagram from the bump the lamp scene, the students are usually just sitting there kind of going, like, on every frame? And you're like, yeah, on every frame, you know, for it was like insanity. It was it insanity. Was. If I could it just jump in here, it sounds absolutely maddening when you talk about it like that, the both of you, because these days you can just do everything digital and then you can do the rotoscoping and you can do this, that and the other. Well, you know, I mean, to, to some degree, you're correct in that, you know, if this was a, a digital shot, you'd set up all your lights and, you know, you would do your animation action and you could recreate that. But I will tell you right now, I don't think it would have the warmth of that scene that was done. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, no, when, I, I agree. I, I think yeah. they're two different animals. I yeah, think they're they both, are. They're both equally 
wonderful and valuable, but they they do different things. I mean, I think yeah. what's happened. The, the computer, though, the, the computer makes it look perfect, right? And which is and, the problem, and, and, and that is the problem. <laughs> you know, because in animation, we always use the word cheat. You always cheated things. You made it. You know, uh, it, it was hyper realism. Oh, for sure. I, degree, the the other know? thing, you know, one of the things uh, I've been um, teaching history of animation now since 2015. Um, after the book came out, people started asking me to, to include that in, in, in what I taught. And when I was writing Setting the Scene, I had to go back and track down, you know, following my dad's journalistic example of, you know, making sure that you check your sources. I had a feeling in my head that the expression, the willing suspension of disbelief, was yeah. like a 1960s Marshall McLuhan medium. It actually comes originally from Aristotle, but as we have it, it comes from Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the guy who wrote The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. So the contract that you enter into when you go into the cinema to watch a movie is you say, here is my money, lie to me for the next two hours, and yeah. I will believe everything. I'm quite happy. Just convince me that this world exists, that these characters matter, and that I should engage with them emotionally. So you are absolutely, you know, if the other thing that people forget is the Muppets. You know, people go into all this photorealistic nonsense in high resolution, real-time CG rendering. Miss Piggy's eyes don't move. They don't even open and close. Yeah. But we don't believe any the less in Miss Piggy's emotional journey or her existence as a character um, because it's artifice. And that's what theater is. That's what the whole Greek idea of catharsis and, and she, is. And she's a personality. She's a character. Yeah. She, she pulls at your emotional heartstrings. Yeah, and, and people, if you watch the footage of Jim Henson and Frank Oz with Johnny Carson, with Michael Parkinson, they are sitting there physically with their arm inside the puppet and yeah. the interviewer is talking to the puppet. So it's like the Japanese Bunraku Puppet Theatre, which I got to see because growing up in Edinburgh, we had the International Arts Festival every August and September, and my dad used to get free tickets to stuff. So I got to see Laurence Olivier playing Shylock. I got to see Yehudi Menuhin playing Vivaldi. I got to see the Japanese Bunraku Puppet Theatre. It's the same deal. Yeah. You tune out the fact that there are two or three operators in kimonos. Yes. You know, they're not like covering themselves in black right. polo necks and yeah. trying not to be conspicuous. These are very proud craftsmen uh, who are operating these puppets and the puppets are moving in a way that completely engages you and you just tune well, them out. It's like mom and chance. Uh, exactly. The Swiss which, guys, which, who I also which, saw. Yeah. yeah which, which you, you know, you can kind of initially see them in their black uh, leotard yep. costumes that are covering their entire body and face and everything. For sure. But you completely lose sight of them moments into it. Yeah. And you're focused on, the actual performance that's going on with these shapes and, you know, these puppets and things like that. And I think that when you look at, um, you know, the, the work that was done with the optical printers and the, the you know, the step-by-step -step process that ILM went through with all the elements that we sent over to them, there was such a long tradition. I, I, I came very close to getting the opportunity to interview Jack Cardiff because I'd interviewed so many animation camera operators and scene planners that I wanted to get a live action cinematographer's view of 
the, the importance of animation camera work. And the reason I wanted to interview Jack Carter was because of his work with uh, Pops Day, with, you know, Peter Ellenshaw's stepfather, you know, the yeah. guy that did all those amazing matte paintings on Black Narcissus. And, and then when I got to interview Don Iwerks, uh, which Howard Green organized, and Don was just such a gentleman and so generous with his time and his knowledge. And he was talking so much about, and I got to speak with Harrison Ellenshaw as well about, you know, being on location for perspective notes and the work that they did on Tron, because on Tron, that was the first time they ever had to splice together optical camera perspective, uh, digital perspective and draftsman's perspective. All three had to be meshed and they just yeah. created these little polystyrene cubes that were put in front of the camera on every single shot setup so that they had lines to trace off to a vanishing point. We All those movies, Tron, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, there was a period where in the imagination of the movie makers, some of them were thinking, eventually our digital toolkits will be flexible and powerful enough for us to be able to do this. But on the ground, the people that were making the movies were like, we have this in our heads. We can do this with pencil. We can do this analog. Yeah. You know, yeah. tr the first Tron is also analog. There's, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's... And, and um, you know, I think, I think people have to realize when you look at uh, animation, when you look at Snow White and the Seven Dwarves or Pinocchio, a lot of people don't realize it. They were limited to four cell levels against the background. You know? Well, when I, when I was right? uh, when I was writing the section about sequence two, scene one in Pinocchio, the the maximum they could do on the vertical multiplane was was five shelves. Right. And uh, the point. Yeah, where but I'm, decided, I'm talking. I'm talking the basic animation down shooter. Yeah, well, Not even the multiplane. Underneath, underneath the platen, you yeah, had four completely. four cells against and the background. The and that yeah. was the maximum. But I got a, an email from JB Kaufman while I was working on that. And he went, you do realize that they went to a sixth level there and they had to build another horizontal rig, which was called the universal multiplane and turned up in all the Herman Schultheis photographs that were yeah. in the John Canemaker book. Um, but yeah, they, they went and actually on the, I, I was one of the first people ever to go into the ARL and ask to see exposure sheets. They're like, you want to see exposure sheets? <laughs> well, uh, the, and the beauty is they had them. They had them. And yes. Tom Baker, who had been head of scene planning on yeah. Tarzan, came in with me to look at the um, Pinocchio sheets. And we had the, 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 the exposure sheets from the test shoot for a sequence two scene one, which was all the pencil artwork. And the amazing thing was that on every single um, column, in every single frame, they were pierced with like a compass point or a needle. And it was like Braille. And I was like, why are they doing this? And he said, because they had to do the whole thing in the dark. And um, later on, they would have these pen lights that would be on their caps. Yeah. But he said, you couldn't, if you forgot to switch that off, there'd be a flash frame and you would have to start the whole thing over again. Right. So the only way that the operators and Don Iwerks explained that on each of the five levels of the vertical multiplane, there was a buy-off switch. So each operator was looking at the exposure sheet um, moving the wheels for the increments of the background or the overlay or the scenic element, putting on the cell, closing the platen and going, I'm ready to shoot. And until all five buy-off switches were plus, the guy at the top couldn't expose. And then they were using sequential printout technicolor, which was red, green, and blue. So they had right. to do three exposures. They had, they had to do three exposures, yeah.
which is I insane. I know. Yeah. But and back during that time, they they had uh, 24 hours. Uh, it was yeah. a 24 hour operation. And it the would go round, round and round and round. Because and, you had three, you had three shifts of cameramen. And if they were they started shooting a, a long multiplane shot, it was you, you worked on it for eight hours. And then the next guys came in, got a briefing of what was going on. Exactly. And they, and, it just kept going. And you can see in Roy Nesbitt's notes to John Leatherbarrow for the scene where Roger flies off the Succolux vacuum cleaner in Something's Cooking and you have that insane feeling yeah. that you're tumbling through space. The background painting for that is a huge horseshoe and they had to build out the compound table to support the artwork. Yeah. And, you know, Roy and John spent forever, like, finding ways of making the available compound table, table bigger. But on his BiPAT notes and all of the diagrams that he made for John, he's like, you know, shoot the very first thing next morning. And they would have to lock the camera, mat, the camera room so that the cleaners wouldn't come in and bump the rostrum with their right. vacuum cleaner. Right. Because if you dared to take a coffee break or go and sleep... You had to, you would lose all the registration and you'd have sure. to reshoot. Yeah. So there's all these little, you know, like clues to it's very, the fact very that stressful, very stressful. Really stressful. You know? And there's the famous case uh, the, uh, with when they were filming Ave Maria um, at the end of Fantasia and there was yeah. an earthquake. Yeah. And they actually had to go back and reshoot. And like the, the, the final print got to the, the the premiere like hours before it went yeah, into it was, the projector. As we like to say, it was still wet from the lab. <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, we were still, you know, the point at which I realized that the digital revolution was really encroaching on our territory was working at Passion Pictures, doing all these Roger Rabbit-style commercials and seeing that all of the 35-millimeter elements were now being digitized and put through the composite image system and i was like okay if the post-production is going to be in the computer i have to find a way to get into the digital world otherwise i'm going to be swept away in the tide yeah. and that it was spending all that time we used to go to rushes in old compton street and they also had all the quantel flash harry and flame units there but the big unit that we used to use the the the, the, the suite that we were in was the composite image system uh, and and those other those uh, the flame and and the what was the other one the Quant Quantel Flash Harry uh, yeah, yeah. The, those were those were effects compositing uh, systems uh, yep. just different brands by different companies yeah and I that was the point at which I answered the advert in the newspaper for Cambridge Animation Systems they were looking for somebody who was a total idiot with computers <laughs> who was prepared to admit that they were an idiot with computers because they wanted somebody to be able to teach other people who were nervous about the yeah, encroaching yeah. computer technologies. So that was, yeah, nice. You know, I, it's interesting. I, I never felt, um, I, I never felt threatened by the digital technology as it was developing. I, I embraced it. I, I, I felt like, you know, these were more tools for us to do cool things. Yeah. And I, that was my attitude too. And because of what my father went through in the print industry, you know, they didn't want the digital typesetting and everything. That was always very, you know, you embrace the technology. Don't yeah. try and, you can't be King Canute. You can't just push your hands up and expect the ocean not to come onto the beach. Right, right. Um, no, you know, I, I, I think, yeah, carry yeah, on. Go ahead, go ahead. I, well, I think that, that, you know, a great deal of what was possible 
at the period where DreamWorks was opening up and Warner Brothers were going into production on Space Jam, you know, people had been waiting for a way that they could go into competition with Disney. But what people forget is that until Prince of Egypt and Space Jam, even though Bluth was doing what you guys were doing in Dublin, and even though there were well, even before that, there, he he did Secret of Nim, which was which was Secret an eye opener. Uh, it was an Fantastic. eye opener to everybody because it was the first time somebody did an independent feature film that rivaled the quality of Disney. The, and at that time, completely outstripped the yeah. quality of what Disney were then producing. Yeah, um, and you know that was um, that was extraordinary. But the the, the issue until the 1990s and the digital revolution was that these little kind of pockets of activity, kind of like the Fleischer brothers with Gulliver's Travels and Mr. Mm -hmm. Bug Goes to Town, but nobody had ever managed to crack the really hard nut, which was not just to make a good good quality feature-length animated film, but to have it be distributed and successful all around the world. Right. And Disney were still the only people doing that in yeah. 1995, And, and, and not, not only distributed it all around the world and have it resonate with audience, but have it resonate generationally. Oh, completely. And I think, you know, that that's one of the, um, in your uh, interview with Chris Montan, you know, when he's talking about the impact that the music had and, you know, those moments in, in story and in, in uh, narrative between characters where they're worried that the audience might get, the kids in the audience might begin to shift in their seats or whatever. The, the masterful thing that I really tuned into when we were working on Tarzan about the whole Disney process is that there is nothing shameful in the Disney culture about being entertaining. And the, the, the entertaining in terms of getting hold of an audience and understanding that that audience is going to be with you their whole lives. My mom could remember exactly where she was sitting in the cinema in Aberdeen when her aunt took her to see Snow White when it came out. Wow. It was so clearly imprinted yeah. on her, her mind. And my father... You know, people remember their experience of Disney as a child. And years later, I mean, I will still, for the sake of my mental health, I will still sit down and watch Robin Hood or Sleeping Beauty or whatever, just to remind myself of how good this can be, yeah. you know, and how, and I don't feel any longer that I have to apologize to anybody, but I had a very powerful feeling of that all the way through art school because the only time I heard Walt Disney's name being mentioned when I was studying to be an artist and a designer, it was being used as an insult. It was being used in the pejorative sense. Sure. And there was this very kind of awkward European thing of, of course, we're, we're above all of that vulgar commercial stuff. Right, and I'm like, right. above it, really? Is that where you are? Okay. I, 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 don't, <laughs> I don't view a Snow White or a Pinocchio or any of those films as vulgar commercialism. I, I view them as high art. I, me too. I, I, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more, but it's incredible the power of taste and the idea of what is cool and what is not. And yeah. How do you feel, you know, talking about those, those earlier feature films and the fact that they resonate generationally, how, how do you feel that compares to today? Because there, there's, there's so much animation production going on, so many features that I sometimes watch a, a, a new animated feature and feel like it's 
very derivative of things I have seen. And it, it lacks that heart that you, you're really hoping it has. So during the crunch period on Tarzan, I was with Dan St. Pierre. Um, I think we were doing one of these like all, all nighter. And, and Dan, Dan was the art director on He was Tarzan. the art director. He yeah. had been in layout department. He'd started off as the layout supervisor and then right. Jean Christophe took over. And what I was saying, we, we, because we were aware during the making of, you know, because Tarzan was in production from 96 through to 90, came out in 99. And I was on it from 97 for two and a half years. And I'd been on Space Jam before that. The important date to remember is that Toy Story came out at the end of 95. And that was like when things started to become, you know, that, that was the beginning of the kind of uh, seismic shift. Yeah. And even, you know, there were early 3D competitors. There was Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius. There was, it was clear that once Toy Story was out of the gate and once Ants was out of the gate and Bugs Life and all these other... There was just, you could hear the stampede coming in yeah. the dif- distance. So Dan and I were kind of talking about this transition from Disney being like this unique entity on the planet that, that could, like I say, clear the streets when I was a kid, if they knew that yeah. Disney was on television. And now that lots of people could afford to put together the crews and the teams to do this, and I remember making the comparison and I said, well, it's a bit like having a cathedral on every corner. I said, if you go to Rouen or you go to Paris, you go to Paris, you go to see Notre Dame. Right. But if somebody down the road goes, oh, I want to build a Notre Dame in Montmartre or I want to build, if there's four or five different cathedrals in one city, it's like, meh, it's another cathedral. Well, it's like going to Rome, there's a church on every corner. And, you know? But the, 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 to me, Snow White... Um, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Bambi, Bambi, I mean, really just jaw swinging in the breeze. Um, these are the cathedrals of the yes. 20th century. And right, sure. when you were saying that we would come together and there would be an international group of people, I always remember people saying, oh, I don't like American movies. I'm like, be you surprised how, how few American people work on them? Because like when you're at Disney, it's people from Venezuela, from Japan, sure. from India, from Ireland, from all. It's a huge. It, 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 the animation community is very international. And, and as we said at the top of the show, um, you know, that's what the Roger Rabbit crew was. It was a very, very international crew. And the common language was animation. And I, I, my friend James Williams, who uh, I worked with on um, Space Jam, but we met originally through the Animo software when he was working with Munich, in Munich Animation in Germany and I was at Telemagination. Uh, around about the time that we were doing some of the early composites, kind of, you know, under the table and off the record for, for uh, Space Jam in London, I was talking to James Williams. Um, uh, speaking of churches. Oh yeah, I have You're a, in a the church. Back yeah, there. that's right. Yeah. The church tower it's, opposite it's the my apartment here. It's the Notre Dame. We know what it is, really. So, so James um, very kindly came to Norway when I was teaching in Norway for an event there that was organised by the students, and he was talking about growing up in a little town in Wales, like I grew up in Scotland. And he came to London and trained to be an animation camera operator, and he got into scene planning and whatever. And one of the students said, "So." do you consider yourself to be a Welsh filmmaker or a British filmmaker or an American? And he said, no, animation is my country. He said, animation is where I get my sense of citizenship. And I 
share that all the time with students because I had that sense of total impossibility as a yeah. child that I saw animation, I loved animation. It never occurred to me that I could be involved in it. And I, as, honestly, when I met Don Hahn on that afternoon and I showed him my artwork and Chris said, can you start on Monday? I had some friends that I'd been working with on the, the Dickens movie at Sands Films and we went for a beer in the evening and they knew that I had a job interview and they were like, so how did the job interview go? And I, I said, well, I think I just got a job with Disney. And they kind of did one of these like spit take things of really? Disney. But there isn't a Disney studio in London. I went, well, there is now. I said, well, you're <laughs> going to be sound effects editing for Disney? And I went, no, I think they've hired me as an artist. And they were like, oh, you're an artist? I went, yeah, I, I, you know, I was at art school. And, you know, I was so kind of incognito in the movie industry as a visual artist. Sure. I had never imagined that I would get this opportunity to reunite my love of drawing and design yeah. with my, my love of movie making. And then, of course, when I got involved in the digital side, it kind of parted ways again, which was kind of um, interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think what you have inside the animation community is, is very important um, because it, it, it's like, it's the close, it, it's, it's the, purest form of cinema. A lot of people talk about it this way. Spielberg is always talking about, you want to be a director, go and you know, learn animation first. Um, it's partly because you have control over everything, partly because you have responsibility for absolutely everything that winds up on the screen, but also if it works, it's actually beyond language, like music. You know, if you sit even without the subtitles or with a foreign language version on it, you can absolutely understand what's happening in Beauty and the Beast. You can totally understand what's happening in Tarzan. You can, because this is a group of people who have made it their business artistically, creatively to be able to move an audience to the core. Uh, with visuals and audio in a way that transcends verbal language. You know, that uh, that's interesting. Uh, and, and I completely agree with you because if you take a look at the animated films today, they're dialogue heavy. Dialogue heavy like there's no tomorrow. What Chuck, if, Jones, what Chuck Jones used to call illustrated radio. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and if you look back at those early pictures, there's little dialogue and they do mo much of the communicating is done visually. Even the Completely. emotional moments. Yeah, no, Chuck, Chuck actually was approached at um, one of the early, it wasn't Comic-Con, it was some other event, but there was a, a girl who was studying animation and she had been deaf since she was born. And all of her friends loved The Simpsons, but she was a complete Looney Tunes, Merry Melodies addict. <laughs> and... Um, he said, well, you know, of course, because, you know, if you turn the sound off, it's like the Hitchcock thing. Hitchcock yeah. used to um, work always with the same people. But when younger people did join Hitchcock's entourage or his crew, he had this thing where he would go around and ask them, you know, is there a movie that you've seen that you think I should see that, you know, we should bring in? And then he would get the crew together and they would go to his private screening room on the Universal lot. And two minutes into the movie, he would call the projectionist and say, kill the sound. And he would say, ladies and gentlemen, the moment you're confused about what's happening, I want you to put your hand in the air. And then everybody would discuss why the visual storytelling was not working right. because they were relying on dialogue or they were relying on exposition or whatever. And you don't have that safety net if you're doing animation the way that Disney were doing it for the, the earliest features and still doing it you know, in the, in the second golden age.
Yeah, absolutely. Without question. And, and, and for me, I have to say um, that, you know, again, I go back to what I said earlier, and that is, you know, a lot of the features that are coming out today are too dialogue heavy. Just well, way too dialogue It's not heavy. only too dialogue heavy. There, there's a quote from Paul Schrader, which is, roughly speaking, is movies shouldn't be about other movies. And yeah. we've got a really, like this, the, the diagram, the old, uh, you know, kind of alchemical symbol or the, um, of the snake eating its own tail. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm constantly saying to the students that I'm working with here in Mexico, and also I do work online with students from Colombia, Brazil, Honduras, El Salvador. Um, I was at an event organized by the very amazing, wonderful Pixelatl guys here in Mexico in December. And they asked me to spend a couple of days at the um, uh, creative um, hub in the center of Guadalajara, just doing some sketchbook reviews for the students. And these students would come in and myself and you know some other uh, Mexican designers and artists were reviewing their work. And the students would come in and say, look at my sketchbook. And I'm, it's not a sketchbook. It's a copybook of anime, manga, right. Disney, whatever. And people are not going out and observing. And I said, you know, right. if I wanted to see Japanese designs, I'd go to Tokyo. I'm in Mexico. I want to see what's happening in your neighborhood. Yeah. I want to see what's happening. I want to see what your grandmother looks like. I quick, want to see what's quick happening. Sketches quick sketches of people walking on the streets. Settings, you know, yeah. creating a scene uh, exactly. from life around you. But the problem we've got is a problem that crept into the education system globally after World War II, which is that visual and pictorial communication are a pre-literate skill. As soon as a child, up until the age of five in kindergarten, it's okay to encourage kids to make pictures and paint and yeah. work with clay. But the moment they're able to read, write, and count, that's not real work. That's not what you should be doing. Yeah. Stop drawing in your... It's almost like a form of disobedience. Yeah. And we get this total disconnect because we don't do that with sport. We don't do that with music. If, if kids are good at football, we encourage it. If they're good at music, we encourage it. The other thing that we've got stuck with is the idea of the lone suffering genius artist like Frida Kahlo or Van Gogh or whatever. And these movies are not made by... That would be Van Gogh to our U.S. Sorry, listeners. Van Gogh. Um, <laughs> so if, if you've got a kid that's good at, at, at football or soccer, sorry, um, they, they get onto a junior league team, they got a coach and they go out yeah. and compete. If you've got a child who's good at the cello, uh, she's signed up to a, 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 an instrumental tutor, she joins an orchestra, she goes out and performs. If you have a kid that's got visual talent, sit alone in your bedroom and wait to get famous. And that was the only career advice that we got when I was an art student in Glasgow in the 80s, was be a famous fashion designer, be a famous illustrator, be a famous painter, yeah. be a famous... And it's like, okay, and then what? And, and what we need is more opportunities for young people to appreciate that coming into the animation industry, it's like joining an orchestra. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's like a big visual orchestra. And we need that to be much more uh, present in the education system as well, because animation itself and learning animation skills are such fantastic things for opening your eyes and your mind to everything that is possible in, in 
problem solving, not just storytelling, but problem solving. There, there is an issue too, I, I believe, and maybe you've seen it as well. I think that there are a lot of programs out there that are at for-profit institutions that they're only interested in just shoving a, a body into a seat and taking their tuition money. And, uh, and they're not being honest with some of those people because I've looked at some portfolios over the years of people who spent three or four years at some of these institutions. And they're, I mean, it, to say that their, their work is rudimentary is being kind. It, okay. It's absolutely awful. So fasten your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen. It's <laughs> going to be a bumpy ride. You have, you have, uh, you have, you have, you've put the red flag in front of the bull with this one. So <laughs> the, the book about layout, um, I'll, I'll tell you where the first, the first day that I realized that, uh, that this information needed to be shared the very first time after, this was within 12 months, wasn't quite a year after I finished work on Tarzan. I was back in Scotland and one of the Scottish universities approached me about their animation program. And they said, we're teaching animation, but they have a system in the UK where you have external assessors who come in from outside and they also judge the, the graduate work. And if they don't think it's good enough, it's not good enough for your internal uh, professors or teachers to, to give good grades to their own students just to make it look good. You have this external assessor pass yeah. and they've got to get through that too. And the guy off the record phoned me up and said, the external assessors told us last year that all of our graduate animated student films were terrible and we kind of need to know why. Yeah. So I went in and I was put into a room with their final year students and there were 24 of them. Mm. And there were all these tables covered in paper artwork and what they were trying to work on. And I couldn't tell what, where they expected me to begin. So I, I, I looked at something that I could identify in front of me on the table that the student was trying to get a group of animated characters in hand-drawn animation from the top left-hand corner of the screen in the distance to come towards the camera and then the camera would follow them to the right. Yeah. And he was trying to do it all on 12 field paper. So I said, why are you doing this on 12 field? And there was silence, awkward silence. Yeah. And people going, what's 12 field? I said, why aren't you doing this on 15 field? What's 15 field? They said, you do know there are different sizes of animation paper. Do you have a panning peg bar? What's a panning peg bar? Do you have any panning paper? Do you have any field guides? And my questions went on, Total silence. Eventually I said, look, if you don't have any of this basic kit, how do you do layout? And there was an even more profound silence. And then this girl at the back of the room put her hand up and said, what's layout? She was the course leader. Wow. So let me tell you how this comes about. Because my dad was a journalist with a specialism in education, in the high school system in the UK, when they put the school leaving age up from 14 to 16 and then went up from six, whatever, all the politicians go, oh, we're doing this because we care about the children's education. No, you're not. You're doing it because there aren't any jobs for these kids to go into when they're 14. Right. So there was a collapse of manufacturing in the industry in lots sure. of different places in the world. And what happened in the late 80s and 90s was that the university system, particularly in the UK, took over completely. So the old craft colleges and art schools had to either take university status or be wiped off the map. 
And the universities were looking for a new model they had to operate as competitive businesses. So it became a numbers game. Yeah. And if it's a numbers game, then it's not the pursuit of excellence. No. And if it's the numbers game, well, you have to look for subjects to teach that are not regulated by industry and are not regulated by law. And what is the best subject to attract people, large numbers of students with absolutely no accountability if you do a terrible job of teaching it? Anything associated with media and entertainment. Yeah. And that's why this has got so out of hand all around the world, is that there is no accountability if you do right. a bad job of teaching these subjects. Yeah. In 2016, the guys from Sony Pictures Animation, that, uh, in 2005, um, I was at Sony in Culver City, and I was introduced to one of the guys who was working on their IPACS scheme, which stood for ImageWorks Professional Academic Excellence. As a corporation, as an animation studio, they had got as fed up as I was by that stage after only five years of teaching. And um, they were going out to the universities and colleges and saying, every year we have to put more people around the table to look at the work that your graduates send to us. And every year it's clearer that what you, whatever you're teaching them is not what we do here mm -hmm. at Sony. So if you do want or expect us to hire your graduates, you should let us help you with your curriculum content and we should let us help you advise about the structure of the courses. And the higher education system turned around and gave them the finger. Of course, absolutely. Because you, that, you, you Yeah, know. but you, you know, I, I'm going to tell you a very quick story. I, I, had, I had one of these um, for-profit institutions reach out to me a number of years ago. Is there another uh, kind? Uh, right. Uh, but reach out to me a couple of years ago uh, about... Uh, you know, a potential uh, opportunity, right? Yeah. The first thing I did was I went on their website and I looked at their animation faculty. Yeah. And I have to tell you, probably a quarter of the faculty had gone and gotten their BA through the program and an MA in the program and then just went into teaching at the program. Yeah. No practical professional experience in can the you, industry. Can you imagine if we taught, if we allowed medicine to be taught that way and can oh you imagine gosh. if we allowed engineering or architecture to be taught in that people way? would be dropping like flies but the under underlying thing here is that people buildings will say, would be collapsing yeah and <laughs> what what i've had people say to me year after year is we what you've got to understand fraser and they always put their head to one side as though they're talking to a slightly you know stubborn child and what you have to understand fraser is that you know animation is not a matter of life and death it is a matter of life and death if you take the same, the information from an MRI scanner in a hospital, I was talking to, a, a, I've been doing drawing classes in Guadalajara, six weeks of two hours every Wednesday night for surgeons and nurses. In the 1900s and the 1800s in Scotland, if you were training to be a surgeon, you had to train to, to draw. You had to learn yeah. how to do observational sketching. Sure. If you were a designer or an animation or an art student, you had to learn anatomy. Carl Gnass is one of the few people who's still teaching anatomy. Right. They're right. still, you know, getting people to take their clothes off. But drawing a naked model doesn't mean anything if you're not being told about the anatomy at the same time. So this whole idea about it not being life-saving... The information that comes out of an MRI scanner, particularly talking to my friend here in Guadalajara, who's, who's a cancer surgeon, when children have a particular kind of um, problem with a, a joint that needs to be replaced uh, through childhood cancer before they've stopped growing, these can now be modeled and 3D printed. The survival rates for certain cancer surgeries are, are, are going up. 
this is, you can put a virtual reality headset on before you operate so that you can understand the position and the dynamic yeah. of a tu tumor or something in a circulatory system. And talking to Ted Thomas about Walt and El Grupo, when there was a danger because of all of the investment in by the German government in Argentina, Brazil, and Chile yeah. in World War II, the American government didn't send bombers or soldiers down nope. to try and... They sent animators and songwriters yeah. and artists. Yeah. And I think if one of those nations had, you know, fallen for it and joined the other side in World War II... There would be. A, I'm not saying that the the trip that the, they made, you know, saved the world in World War II. But I think that we have so many ways in which um, understanding visual communication and entertainment. These are life skills, yeah. And these are skills that have a communication and a problem solving application in everything from, like I say, cancer surgery to urban planning to and back in the whole good old world of entertainment. Entertainment exists for a purpose. The, the art, a, I was going to say, there's a reason why you need the foundation. There's a reason why totally. a house has a foundation. Exactly. There's a reason why an artist has to have a foundation yep. with the basics, with, with being a good draftsman or draftsperson. Yep. Uh, and, and that's being lost because there's a lot of people who feel, well, I'm really good with software. Well, yeah, you might be good with software, but you don't have an understanding of the principles of animation. You don't have the observation skills yeah. to, to be able to finesse something. Yeah. You can, you can move an object around in 3d space, but that isn't just, you know, that's not animation in my mind. For sure. And I think you also have to, I mean, I, I, I don't want to try and I, I, I feel bad about um, in some ways about citing these as two examples, but I don't think I was the only person to be struck by the fact that that young girl who was singing in the bomb shelter in Ukraine yeah. was singing a song from a Disney movie. And, uh, you know, I, I remember after 9-11, a lot of people went through a crisis about why am I working in a trivial industry and then realizing all these children who had been orphaned because of the attacks on the Twin Towers, yeah. that their entertainment and their safety in, the, in that world mattered more than it ever did. Sure. And, you know, Zelensky himself is a comedian. Yeah. He's somebody who understands that I, 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 I'm not trying to, uh, to hijack the awful tragedy that's, that's unfolding in, in Ukraine in this context to try and make a, 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 like a, a cheap point about the importance of this. But I do believe that the arts are the immune system for any society. Right. Um, the, 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 the moment that you start to notice something is wrong, it shows up in the cartoons and the newspapers and the songwriters and the protest songs. It's like, if you don't believe me, go to any repressive country and look who's in jail. Right. Um, there's a really great TED talk by a guy called R. Alan Brooks. Um, it, it, while the world is burning, is still is art still something that we should be looking at? And I I wish I could get more people to watch that TED talk because it just made me think. Yes, so this is so there are enough people out there with a a really good voice. And and like what you guys are doing with Skull Rock, Brian McDonald's You Are a Storyteller podcast, all about the importance of good writing. Yeah. The Disney tradition is a narrative tradition. Sure. And that's that's something that's never going to go away and never going to lose its importance. And we are saving humanity here at the Skull Rock podcast. At least I, we're I, trying. 
We're I, trying. Do you know? Do you know I, it's, I'm, I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't put it in quite such extreme terms. But <laughs> recently, I was introducing a friend of mine to Jose Iniesta, who's the CEO of Pixelatl, and I said, "Jose, meet my friend. He wants to know why did you start Pixelatl here in Mexico?" And he said, "To change the world, to change Mexico." You know, and, it's great to have a great vision. Yeah, know? and and for animation to be not just a part of that vision, but to be yeah. the backbone of that vision. So and, l- l- yeah. let me ask you this, uh, uh, Fraser, because we're bumping up against the hour. Um, you have uh, worked in London. You've worked in Glasgow. You've worked in Edinburgh. You've worked in Finland. You're down in, you know, you've worked Norway, in Los- Norway. Oh, excuse me, uh, Norway. You've been in Los Angeles, you, you know, other places. And now you're in Guadalajara, Mexico. What's next for Fraser McLean? The traveling Scotsman. I, I want to put my feet down and stop moving around. So I am going to settle here. Um, and I want to settle here for a number of reasons. I mean, I'm going to be 61 soon and there's a certain amount of wear and tear. You know, I've been sure. through, I feel very lucky that I've been able to spend time in Norway. I've taught in Austria. I've worked in Germany, I've worked in, you know, all these different places. I'm one of the most fortunate people on on earth. Um, But one of the reasons that I was available, I was able to write the book, um, after Tarzan finished production, uh, my mother and father fell ill. My mother Mm -hmm. with Alzheimer's, my father with cancer. Mm -hmm. I was outside the industry for over 10 years looking after them. So it was a very kind of cold water in the face, real world experience. Do I get to go back into the industry? And I remember seeing Ignacio Ferreira's animated feature film, Arugas, which is all about uh, a retired bank manager with, with dementia. And I realized we've come of age. The animation medium is now able to touch on stories of all kinds. And here in Mexico, photosynthesis media have made Un Disfraz para Nicolas, where, and it's running on Disney Plus here in Latin America, which is the, the hero is a 10-year-old boy with Down syndrome. They made El Ángel en el Reloj, which is uh, all about um, a girl going through leukemia. She's like uh, a young girl. And there are, there are no stories that can't be told using animation. And it's wonderful to have the opportunity to be here in Mexico for the beginning of an entirely new industry. Um, there's a, a fantastic industry already here. There are great companies. There's um, Animai Studios, there's Huevo Cartoon, there's Demente, there's Mighty. There's, there's a lot of really terrific animation studios and producers here. But getting up to that international competitive level and seeing all of the fresh ideas, you've got so many great masters of cinema that are from Mexico. You've got Jorge Gutierrez, Alfonso Cuaron, uh, you've got um, Guillermo del Toro with the tire de Chucho here in, in Guadalajara. To, to me, having this opportunity so late on in my working life to be around for a fresh start of something that teaches me something new every day of the week is how many people get that kind of chance put in front of them? Right. And right. I don't really want to turn around and say, okay, I've done my two years. I'm I'm going to go back to Scotland. I've been here three and a half years and I'm not going anywhere. Well, I, I, think- I would say that the winters are probably very pleasant in Guadalajara. 
They're certainly compared to bit, Scotland. They're certainly a little bit warmer than they are in Scotland. <laughs> but I, I, honestly, um, you know, and they're certainly a lot warmer than they are in you know uh, ninety minutes north of Trondheim, which is where <laughs> where I was for three years before I came here. But no, it, it's not. I'm not here for the tacos, and I'm not here for the weather, and I'm I not would here be. for. Oh well, those are all extras. And by the way, Guadalajara for our listeners is inland a little bit from Puerto Vallarta, That's uh, right. which is right on the Pacific coast of Mexico. Uh, Do you know that and, in all the time I've been here, I have never been to the ocean. Oh, well, you know, part, you should go. Pandemic, but, well, you yeah. should go out to Puerto Vallarta. It's a, absolutely beautiful, and there's yeah. a great shop in Puerto Vallarta uh, that has all of these wonderful Day of the Dead. Figures yeah. that are handmade, oh, yeah. you know, it's just really something else. I I love Puerto Vallarta. Yeah, and we're we're doing these open sketching sessions every month, uh, which we just started again since the pandemic, where we have live music, we have circus performers, we have food, we have families with kids, we have students, we have professional animators, illustrators, and people have a whole afternoon on a Saturday where they can just get together and paint and draw and make puppets and do stuff. And I never would have been able to get something like that organized yeah. in any other city or in any other culture. And I, you know, I've tried in other places to do smaller versions of it, but here it's become something that is actually giving birth to new projects and relationships and interactions with people. And it's a very open, warm, enthusiastic culture. And I feel very, very lucky, you know, even going back to what James said, you know, animation is my country. That's where my sense of citizenship comes from. And there's a lot going on in Latin America. I mean, we could do a oh, whole man. discussion about that. I, I, a few years ago was down in Santiago, Chile, uh, at a big animation festival. They, they've got a robust animation community going on down there. In fact, really? one for of their sure. animators had a, a short film nominated for an Academy Award. No, they won the Academy Award. Did they it win was, it that it was, year? It was Punk yeah. Robot. It was yeah, the bear, okay. bear story. Yeah, yeah. The, it was yeah. Gabriel Osorio. And, yeah. You know, the Chile Monos Festival is really important. Ventana Sur Animacion in, in Buenos Aires. You should definitely come down for Pixelatl. And there are so many, you know, there are great. Uh, Luis Manuel Villarreal, he, he animate, uh, animated on Space. There's a lot yeah. of people who are doing work on the big American movies, traditional hand-drawn sure. animation, CG work. There's incredible stop-motion work being done here in, in Mexico and Craneo, Hikuri, all, all kinds of different places. Absolutely amazing. Well, Fraser, we are going to talk with you again in the not-so-distant future. I look forward uh, to it. And, and, and drill into the Latin American animation scene a little bit more. Can I, I bring wanna, some of my Can I bring some of my local Latin American yeah, Mexican animation I, friends in with I, I would love to. I would absolutely love to. Um, and, and we'll have to talk about the Empanada Festival because I'm sure there's one someplace. I, well, there, there are <laughs> So many different reasons for people to want to come down here, but I and yeah, and guys like Cinema Fantasma, you know, the the, the they've got this Frank Helder project running on HBO and the the Idea Tune IP creation scheme that Pixlatl have created. There's a real energy behind trying to put the foundations down, as you say, yeah. for new content that is letting people experience stories and culture that they may be surprised. To, to discover. And it's a wonderful place to be. All right, my friend. It was great seeing you and catching up with you. It's been, it's been so long. Fraser, do you have a, a website or any social media that people can follow you at this point? 
You can find me on Facebook. Uh, I'm not on Instagram. I am on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, and yeah, there, there's, um, and if, if you can't get directly through to me as a friend connection on Facebook, you can send me a message. Uh, I look forward to us getting together again in the future. And for sure, the next time I go to Puerto Vallarta, I will let you know. Oh, dude! Uh, if you come down to Mexico and you don't come yeah. visit, I'll be I'll be very well, I'll be very upset. How, how did I know that you were in Guadalajara for crying out loud? All right, my friend. Listen, uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you very much for being on the Skull Rock Podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you to both of you, and thanks to the audience as well. And look forward to seeing you again. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. World traveler and so many great insights in in where the world of of art and education uh, for artists uh, uh, is is heading uh, with Fraser McLean. Uh, What a great guy. Yeah, he really is terrific. And, and talk about globe trotting. I mean, you know, he's, yeah, I, I first met him, as we said, you know, uh, when I worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit in mm-hmm. London mm-hmm. and he was part of the team there. Uh, just a really terrific guy, uh, as everybody can hear from this interview that we just did with him. And uh, I look forward to getting him back on the show. And, and, and by the way, afterwards, we did talk about uh, possibly doing sort of a group of, um, uh, artists uh, for the anniversary next year for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I think it would be great. I think it would be great yeah. to, to document and maybe put some video up for everyone yeah. or maybe I think it'd be kind of cool to have like four or five of the artists and, and just do a round robin hitting each one with questions and mm-hmm. just having a, a good discussion. I think I think our listeners would really enjoy that. Yeah, if only you knew a moderator for that. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Al John, I, I, guess, I guess we'd have to talk about who would do that. Yeah, yeah. No, but anyway, no, uh, it, it's great. I, I really feel feel like uh Frazier's the animator the art a- of animation um missionary if you will bringing that sensibility uh, to uh, to the wider globe so yeah. uh, kudos to him and his work and i look forward to having him back on the show dave yeah. what an amazing uh, show uh, don't forget team you can always reach out to us via email dave or aljohn at skullrockpodcast.com Follow us on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, of course, and send us those messages. We absolutely love it. Leave us those reviews as well on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Stitcher Radio now. We're on Sorcerer Radio. We're on, of course, Apple, Google, Amazon, and, of course, Anchor FM and Spotify. So please leave us those those reviews. We would certainly appreciate it. Dave, it's all you now. As always, Al John, peace and love to everybody out there all around the world, to all of our listeners. And we will see you again next week right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves well i can do all of the legwork for them i have expertise i've been to the disney parks 
well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.